or we crank them out. Uh, very excited for today's guest. Uh, coming from the world of snow sports, action sports, ex-professional rider, now surfer mother, Sherlene Smasher, and also the executive vice president of action sports at Wasserman uh, Group. So she's got to have a whole bunch on her plate. But uh, really excited today to be able to talk to uh, the one and only Cersei Wallace. How are you, Cersei? Hi, I'm great. How are you? Hey, okay. Okay. So I thought you've, got, you've had an extremely um, pretty epic um, journey through the world of action sports and snow and, and I'm only 35 now but what has become pretty clear as you get a little bit older and you start to see the game is we're almost like this kind of first or second the, probably maybe in some ways first or second generation of humans that have kind of come through this world which didn't exist 50 years ago right and then so I was thinking about it uh, just in the weekend when I was sort of shredding along I'm like man when I'm 80 I might have great grandkids that I might be snowboarding with but that didn't exist 50 years before me. When you think of the arc of your journey within action sports and the, the macro, macro zoom out of I'm a flippin' alien, how, do you, um, how would you craft the arc of your story within the world of action sports and snow um, for your journey so far? Well, I mean, I, I really cut my teeth as a skateboarder in the Northwest. So that's really where I fell in love with board sports. And, you know, there's an interesting transformation that happens, I think, once you start looking at the world through uh, a skateboarder or snowboarder's lens, and you start to see, like, transitions where you didn't see them before, or, you know, there's just kind of a profound perspective shift, and, and some of that might have been aided by some early psychedelics, but I think that ultimately... Um, skateboarding was really like uh, a space that I felt like I fit in. I think I was kind of an outlier, you know, a little bit of a, you know, a, a punk kid who didn't really quite fit in. I was a little bit of an ugly duckling and never really felt super comfortable in school and amongst the social crowd. I was social, but never really found my tribe until skateboarding. And then once you have that perspective shift, um, inevitably anything with a sideways stance piques your interest. And and snowboarding was kind of coming onto the scene in the in the mid you know early to mid '80s was where I discovered snowboarding uh, through a friend um, who was going local to the Oregon mountains and invited me on a trip, and and I was compelled. And so I, I went on that trip and it was like all of a sudden the world just opened up for me because I had grown up with real hippie parents and we had camped all the time. And, you know, we were relatively low income and camping was like our thing. Right. And so I had kind of rebelled against that in my teens and really just, you know, I moved to Seattle when I was 14. I really wanted to be kind of in the urban landscape until I discovered snowboarding where it was like the nature's playground was a whole nother uh, incredible, expansive and, and beautiful landscape. Right. And I remember night skiing at Pac West, you know, this must've been like 80, seven or 88 and just feeling like for the first time in my teen years like I was in I was home 
you know, like I was, I was doing something that felt good and, and was fluid and expressive and also, you know, aggressive, but also, you know, in a, a white covered nature, beautiful landscape. And it just felt like the perfect combination of what I needed in, in at that time in my life to feel full or fulfilled um, in a way that uh, really sent me on, you know, quite an interesting journey as a professional snowboarder. I started competing in a lot of the Northwest Series events and did quite well. And, you know, there weren't a lot of girls or women participating at that time. There was a handful of us. We're all still friends. Um, and, you know, that's where I really found my tribe. Like, I made lifelong friends, all of those people, you know, I don't talk to anyone really that I went to high school with a couple friends that I've kept in touch with who I found through skateboarding, but snowboarding was where I found like my lifelong relationships. And ultimately, you know, my husband, uh, Andy Hetzel, um, Jamie Lynn was my boyfriend for, for many years and, and just kind of, um, allowed me a level of social acceptance and uh you know certain goalposts to hit from a competitive standpoint that i never really appreciated before and kind of a drive and motivation um with a path towards something that was really expansive for me and so I did quite well on the Northwest series. I ended up going to Japan and, and won a world championships there, which is hilarious because it was like a total pop taco pipe. And, you know, it was like a fun crew. I'll never forget it. Um, and then I got sponsored. I was, uh, I was an early uh, flow Mervin LibTech rider uh, Jamie Lynn was my boyfriend at the time. And then I moved to ride and ride was where I really found like opportunity, I think to really develop products. And I'd always been really ambitious and wanting to like pictured myself as a business person. Like I really wanted to be a business person, you know? And so ride gave me a home to do that. Tim and Steph Pogue really let me kind of come in and participate in really meaningful ways in like marketing and decision-making. And I got to kind of, uh, you know, see how, or participate, I guess, in the, in the development of, of the brand. And that was just a really great experience. And, you know, I got to travel the world, had, you know, great relationships, so many friends. There's so much love, you know, it's like snowboarding is just such a cool community. It's it's not as angst filled as skateboarding. Women and girls are much more accepted. And so I really fell in love with my community and and the actual experience of of snowboarding. Yeah, it's um back to the, the points you see around the perspective shift. It's like, you know, you put a different lens on and it's kind of unlimited creativity to be able to, you know, go wherever, go wherever you want, do whatever you want, as fast as you want, that whole thing. And that kind of opens up your mind for, for possibilities. And I think that translates extremely well outside of just the sport too. You just, you look at things a bit differently, especially, you know, if you want to, you've obviously done extremely well in the business game um, to be able to see things a little bit differently, but then coming from an authentic place where that community is, it's kind of, probably more like 
organically and authentically synced with each other with its mission and purpose and vibe and you know all the rest of it and it's it's a, it's a tricky one to sort of um navigate but getting probably a little segue into that business side being able to go with the team at ride did were you aware at the time that you were starting to help like shift culture or was it just like i want to make some cool products and do some cool shit like what, what your headspace strategically when you started getting in those rooms and being the design meetings and the marketing meetings and all these other things did you feel that this was a you were getting a shot to put a little stamp in the ground of like all right this is my shit here or was it kind of you just kind of caught up in the drinking the kool-aid moment of like this is great i'm getting my own shit like how was your strategic approach to starting to mess with with businesses um at that time i mean i think it was really opportunistic because i saw an opportunity to like be the one girl on the ride team and to represent my gender in a way that also was um kind of self-rewarding right so I think it was kind of a combination of those things. And I don't think I was super like conscious of it. I think I just really, I've always been inherently ambitious. And so I was very opportunistic in making sure that kind of like I wedged myself in there and that I was really loud and probably pretty annoying, you know, in um, carving out space for myself in, in, but you did it strategically, right? Yeah. You clearly did it strategically. Yep, got it. Yeah. And I mean, it certainly kind of evolved organically, but I've, I was always kind of vying for like, okay, where's my place here? How can I be, you know, I wanted to be big. I wanted to be seen, right? And really, I mean, if you really want to unpack that, it's like just wanting to be loved. Like we all want that. We all want attention. We all want to feel um to feel loved and liked. And I had never had, you know, I was never popular in school. I was never really good at anything, you know, you know, I was good at dance, but it wasn't like I was getting any personal attention. And so I think for me, really, it was about, you know, how do I contribute in a way that is meaningful, but also allows me a level of visibility and um, perceived success that made me feel good. Hmm. Yeah, it's. Do you think you, if you were the cool kid at school, you would have had the same driver to be a player in a different industry in a new world? Probably. I mean, I look at like you know my daughter. She's at university. She's super self motivated. Gets great grades. She's a freshman playing soccer at a Pac twelve university. Super self motivated. All her. She just chose a different path, but she really, I can tell, like she feels um uh really rewarded and enriched by uh, the amount of playtime that she gets or winning a game or you know those kind of milestones that are identifiable measures of success right mm. and so yeah i think i came from a very um you know i went to like 12 different primary schools my family moved around a lot <laughs> yeah. So I had to be really adaptable, but also there wasn't like the same kind of opportunity, you know, like for Ava, my daughter, you know, she was born in this house and, you know, had a level of stability and consistency that I think and support that allowed for a more kind of traditional trajectory. I just had to kind of figure that out a little bit on my own. And unfortunately, I found I found skateboarding and snowboarding. 
We um we had uh, Mark Frank Montoya on the show um, a little bit ago, and we were discussing kind of the world of you know obviously you go into the ride thing, you started getting the landscape, but then you started to get on the agent side and working with um, epic athletes from all over the show. And I was talking with with Mark Frank about it around how the timing of his skill set in the market for the media that was around at the time made for this crazy intersection of opportunity and exposure that almost had never been seen before. He's got pro models for every different thing. Like this probably, you know, like him, the J- JP walkers and like there's, there was only maybe a few that was at that level. Just rewinding back a little bit. What was the key driver in being able to understand the business savvy to able to help your friends and crew within the ecosystem to actually try and commercialize their talents in a way for someone that was trusted in one of them like the what was the kind of strategic approach of why do this and how and um was it kind of like you're def- defensive for your friends or was it opportunistic of like hey there's something in here which we can try and do when you morphed into the world of of, of agent agents agent land and having to sort of navigate the, these crazy commercial um world that you got into what was what was that that, that key key driver behind all of it I think the catalyst for me was I grew up with really super lefty liberal parents who are always kind of anti-authority, anti-authoritism and, you know, skateboarding really played into that. And the idea of being, I always was good at like negotiating my own deals. I really immersed myself in the business. And so the idea, the catalyst was really like the opportunity to kind of fight the monster of of, you know, the big multinational corporations on behalf of the individual, right? Like that was like a really easy thing that also it made me feel good, right? That I was advocating for, that I was fighting for the rights and benefits of an individual, much like an artist, an athlete really only has, you know, a a certain period of time where they can really maximize and to be able to advocate for them with these companies, it just felt like a very natural kind of place for me, given my kind of inner angst and my anti-authority kind of mentality that really, you know, was why I love skateboarding and snowboarding, right? It was like kind of rebellious. We were always the outliers. We got spit at from the chairlift by the skiers or, you know, the skateboarders, you know, I had black, short haired, I would dye my hair crazy colors. And there was something, you know, about being, you know, the misfits. Like owning that, right? Like yeah. really owning that kind of rebellion in a way that also allowed me to make a living. It was like the perfect uh, fusion of those kind of uh, my, my, uh, Uh, my ambition and my desire for, you know, material wealth on some level married with uh, an opportunity and an ethos that allowed me to feel good about marrying those things. Because Mm -hmm. I think I always had a little bit of conflict because I grew up without money and I wanted money and I wanted nice things. Um, And, but I also, you know, I didn't just want to be, you know, part of the machine. I wanted to to contribute in a meaningful way for people. And so that is really 
uh, and I think too, you know, I had gotten injured and I really wanted to find a way to stay a part of the culture and community that allowed me to earn a living, um, but also allowed me to continue to go be on the mountain and, you know, uh, participate in the culture in a meaningful way. Mm. Yeah, I think the that ev- advocacy piece is, is huge, right? Because the majority of the time, you know, 99% of creatives don't understand commerce and most commercial people aren't really creative. So there kind of is this funky intersection. And I guess we're probably potentially both pretty blessed. We can kind of, you know, we've got creative vision for stuff, but also understand some of the commercial sensibilities and the, the real world of some of how these things roll. I was going to say, when you first started out, you obviously looked different to most and then you sit in these flipping boardrooms with these multinational billion dollar entities how would you navigate not potentially the maybe i'll start here did you use the potential judgment of what they thought you were because what you look like as ammunition to potentially leverage in commercial negotiations like did you play the dumb card a little bit and then strategically roll them like how did you um how did you approach dealing with the big, big, big boys when you didn't look like them, roll like them, act like them, talk like them, but they, you knew that they wanted to potentially exploit what you loved and then you wanted some of what they had. How'd you navigate that? I mean, I hate to say this, but I think I really used being a woman and being relatively good looking woman as, as I, it was almost like a lot of them didn't know what to do with me, right? So I kind of put them off their balance yeah. a little bit. It was a little off-putting. So, you know, I would get in the door, you know, by being cute. And then I would demand a level of respect that was was off-putting for them. And so I think that actually often worked to my advantage. There are certainly times in my life where it hasn't. And certainly it becomes less uh, viable as you get older. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it's funny because people ask me this all the time. It's like, I didn't really even notice the kind of inherent misogyny and sexism of the patriarchal power structures that we all operate in today until I was much older, yeah, much older. And that was just because, you know, I guess I was somewhat naive and really cocky and just like, you know, you're going to stop me. And that was, you know, that it wasn't until I, you know, I got higher up right where I was an actual threat or, um, you know, that I really felt that kind of oppressiveness of society. Mm. Now I, I, I asked that because in, um, in, in my world, one of the few things, most of the boardrooms and corporates, it's all suit and ties and, you know, big dollar, big bullshit. And I roll in a $7 t-shirt and some Nikes and I'm swearing and doing my own thing. And it's, I, I've realized that it's an extreme uh, asset because you're, to your point, it puts them off balance if there's a disconnect, if they haven't had a um, either a long sit down with you or something. And I was just wondering how you would have navigated that for your um, for your advantage for for the business side of things, which is which is pretty clear. The, I mean, I think it's, the, it's probably similar to you being Maori and me being a yep. woman, right? Where it's like actually probably more so than actually to be fair, you're probably right. <laughs> yep, agreed. <laughs> right? It's like you're still a man, 
but you're indigenous. So, it, you know, and, 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 and now it's like, well, is it virtue signaling by actually giving me a seat at the table or is it real parody? Right. And I don't care as long as I have a seat at the table. See, that's interesting. I got offered a seat at the table out of some tokenism bullshit and I said, stuff you. This is whack because they said they wanted to do something, quote, the CEO wanted to do something about this Maori and Pacific Island thing. They oh, uh -oh. Thing. And I was like, <laughs> okay, stuff you. But, so, but, but on that point, so you'd rather choose to be in a room where you were there tokenistically by ticking the box bullshit by default as a woman than there on – then then not out of it keep it real stuff you like yeah but the only way that you're going to make change is by having a seat at the table and however i get there is fine as long as i have a seat at the table that allows for some real uh opportunity for my gender or for women or for you know and it's like you have to be in the room to change for a paradigm shift and so however I get there is fine. Um, as long as having a seat at the table allows for real progress. That's interesting. What about if you felt that you wouldn't actually have any sway or power, but they wanted then to I wouldn't, the Then I wouldn't do it. You wouldn't. Yeah. So if I would. it was like, you, you take the seat, but then only if you knew you could kind of shake the tree a little bit and actually make some change. Yeah, and when I say see the table, I mean you know have a vote or you know have yeah, a yeah. have a real influence on um, how we get closer to parity or inclusiveness or a real systemic change. But within your the landscape of um, essentially you know influencing the influences to be you know your craft, you're kind of puppet mastering the, the strategy behind the, the background, and I remember you know like earlier you kind of would have been one of the first sort of big agents in the game that with the trend if you look at the intersection of you know the eyeballs on the x games and the olympics and the toro brights and travis rices and the the media and the tech and just this kind of wave by the time you hit that apex no one was going to mess with you anyway so you were kind of already you were like perfectly positioned in that spot then which was great when you think about the um the approach of most athletes when it comes to saying, Hey, I think I need an agent or not. When they try to have that conversation with you or you try to have that conversation with them, is it based out of greed or fear? Neither. Like, no, I'm saying for them, are they like, I'm fearful of, I don't know this little stuff or greed of like, I, I know I've got 10 years. I need to try and stack some paper. Like how the, the majority of the headspace of the athletes is it based on fear or greed or something else? I don't know. I guess I would, I guess I look at it like good strategic business planning as opposed to fear or greed. Like hmm. it, it only benefits you to have someone in your camp who has the Rolodex, the relationships, the understanding of market value. It's good business planning. And the best relationships that I've had are with athletes that understand the inherent benefit of having representation for those reasons, which is 
this person is going to help me make sure I'm strategically maximizing and <clears throat> I can focus on what it is that I need to do in the athletic realm, which gives me more bandwidth and more time. And whether that's for creative ideation or actual physical training and, and competition. But I, I think often, um, I would say almost all of the athletes that I work with, I signed with parental influence and the parents understand that they need help mm. to be great. And if you look at, and you know, early on it was, um, it was probably a combination of all three, like, oh wait, you know, this person's going to help me get more deals or, you know, it was kind of, we wrote the playbook, right. But we wrote the playbook based on uh, a sports model that it was already in existence. But I think certainly now it's almost always a parent going, my kid clearly has talent. I've reached the capacity of my potential to help them effectively. And I need help and they need help. And so who is the right person, you know, who has experience that um, can help us maximize this opportunity? Mm. Got you. The, um, yeah, I'm just trying to unpack a little bit because, you know, you're talking about the strategic business plan. Athletes that are focused on triple cork 14s aren't thinking of themselves as a business or strategic planning, right? So I think about, you know, that, that line from Jay-Z, you know, he says, I ain't a business man. I'm a business man. And the way, cause I was young on the come up, I trained, I translated it to, um, I'm not a businessman person. I'm a business man, a platform transition from like unscalable time resource to actually something that can, that can boost out when you, um, clearly you think of business and platform, they're thinking of, um, of, of person when you now look at this world of social media and influence and likes living for likes and all this other bullshit, is the energy shifted from most athletes thinking of themselves as platform before they actually get the talent or the product right first? Like, is there a shift of, cause I know in the sponsorship realm, a lot of brands, the first thing now they're looking at is, you know, how many followers do you have and this and that, and the metrics of where the dollars are coming from feels to in some instances, a lot of the time more so than not now, um, is actually not necessarily the person and the talent, but um, potentially the platform of what they then have to potentially exploit. How have you um, seen this shift in the last 10 years since the integration of, or I guess maybe how is, do you feel sponsorship has changed for athletes since the um, invention or the um, the rapid growth of social media? It's an interesting question because the the athletes that make the most money in action sports and Olympics are the ones that can do both, who have a robust platform, but they got that platform from winning, right? So if you look at today's stars, even Travis Rice, right, who doesn't compete outside of natural selection, his own legacy property, he competed. And that is how you know, it, and he did, you know, Chad's Gap or whatever, which a lot, a super park, which really was what, you know, it was a culmination of content, media and winning. 
And so the Tony Hawk moment, he's had a couple of those, right? You have those. Yeah. I was talking about something on the other day here. Sorry. Oh, no, fine. Um, I, I think that the interesting thing about skateboarding and surfing and snowboarding specifically is that you don't necessarily have to be competitive to make a living, right? But you're going to make six figures versus seven figures if you're not competing. I can't name one athlete who has purely done the social media or the content play who has made more money than the athletes who have both, which is a, a real trajectory of competition success that allows them to build the flat platform and visibility so that their voice or their messaging is meaningful. And I think you could look at skateboarding, which, you know, you win skater of the year or, or whatever, which are things that allow you, you know, greater earning potential. But the real dollars come from winning, you know, the non-endemic partnerships that come from competition-based uh, success. Yeah, and and clearly navigating out of after you've got that platform and that community and that brand publicly navigating to other things which you can control and i think you know as you said there with say travis with natural selection it's it's a legacy property right it's long game uh ownership equity ip brand you know there, there's something of you know I, I always say you know like legacy is greater than currency um because it gives you um you know it gives you longevity it gives you um relatability like i was talking to yeah, so my buddy Maddo again, he was talking about, you know, um, Jamie Lynn was saying he's up in like Bullface Lodge. He's like hanging out there, like shredding, doing art and stuff. And he just does whatever he wants. He's in the mix. It's like, well, he can, he's a legend. He can do what he wants. He's there hundred percent, you know? Um, do you feel that social media has made athletes now chase the wrong thing first? Like they go for the platform first instead of the product. They want the followers instead of the, switch front by the same way as actually learning how to ride switch on your toe side edge to come up to something. <laughs> I mean, I think there's a lot of issues and this is not specific even to the rise of social media and caring more about doing a 1400 than being a well-rounded athlete. Right. You, you know, we don't want gymnastics, you know, trick ponies, you want well-rounded. I mean, that's why McMorris winning a uh, natural selection in Jackson Hole was so amazing because the first time redemption, redemption. Yes, because the first time he did bald face natural selection, he literally tumbled down the face. Or I'm sorry, it was ultra, ultra natural or supernatural. But, but he had won X Games, right? He'd won X Games or something, and then turned up, and the dude couldn't even turn and powder. Everyone's like, "What are you up to? Like, what the exactly?" <laughs> and he was so filled with shame that he came back 12 years later and showed all of us what a snowboarder he is. And like his acceptance speech, you know, which was like, this is the, one of the coolest things I've ever done in snowboarding. This isn't about me. This is a, this is for snowboarding. And that was just like, yes, that is exactly it. And that he, it was so important to him to like fill in the gaps, right? Yep of the experience, the opportunity and the potential of, and the real true love of, of big mountain freestyle 
that it's like now he is a major contender and will continue to be in a whole nother genre. And that is like, I think, you know, that is the difference between the kids that train on trampolines and just try to, you know, and airbags and just try to get another rotation versus the one who take a, a holistic perspective uh, to their, to their participation and their love of whatever it is that they're doing. And I think you look at some of the most winning athletes of their time. And if they don't fill in those gaps, they are a fraction as happy and joyful of their experience as the ones who truly love what they're doing um, and all of the different aspects and, and variety that the sports allow. It's funny, it comes full circle, you know, it, it starts off, you know, snurfing and shrapping around a bunch of basins, then it starts to get commercialized, gets to the X Games, and then you get the pipe jocks coming through because the Olympics gets in, and then you have, you know, the Ross Powers and the Terjay stuff, and then you have, you know, all this stuff, and then now it comes back to the middle again of like, yeah, but can you do it all, you know, and I think Travis was actually probably one of the, one, the first ones that actually could, you know, you know, growing up shredding full outdoor backcountry, you know, doing big backcountry stuff. And then he's doing, you know, jib stuff on the community project. Then he's, then he's doing park stuff, pipe stuff, like everything, you know? And I think that's when it almost felt like there was seemed to be a little bit of a split going off with athletes then, because it was like, I'm going to be captain jibby forum tech nine stuff. And then I'm going to go this way, backcountry, you know, whatever. I, I do think you're filling the gaps has been pretty clear that especially for Mark, I'm sure it was probably a massive thing for him as well, because he probably felt like the flipping man rolled up, got owned and was like, Oh, there's actually more to this than just maybe trampolines and stuff. Oh, maybe I need to, you know, and you know, I think that's probably going to stay with him a lot. Cause it, it, um, especially forever. And it probably gives him a bit more credit, not, not credit, but yeah, probably a bit of credibility too, but it's, do you feel that the future of snowboarding now is going to make that way forward? Like, how do you feel where the well, headspace of athletes is now? Like, cause some I, of them are obviously quite I think it's always been like that. Like you look at Sean Palmer or Andy Hetzel, you know, Andy who won tons of border cross, he would win pipe. You know, we, back in the day, we did everything. It was, you, you wanted to do, you, we, I remember we were all riding like, asymmetrical race boards you know for the weekend slalom events and i think you know it once the olympics came into play then you start having this really fragmented you know uh, um specific uh training you know like if you look at like i don't know as an example the chinese team right? The Chinese team, they train so hard. They only train in the 22 foot pipes, but you're not seeing them on the podium. And the reality is because I don't think you can be as good of a snowboarder without training or skating, you know, with, with Tokyo's debut in all different kinds of, of terrain. And I think that, um, inevitably you go through a phase where it's like really opportunistic and people are like, Oh my God, my kid can go to the Olympics. And so now you have to train like an Olympian. But the reality is, is if you really want to be the best in the world, you have to be able to have a level of diversity of experience and expression when on the field of play. And that's mm -hmm. what's so cool about 
snowboarding and skateboarding is there's an element of artistry. There is a layer of, uh, of creativity that I think a lot of the um, other sports lack. And it cannot just be great without those. You, you know, you can't be great without some level of, you know, whether it's like Yuri with the YOLO, like developing a new trick or a new perspective, a perspective shift on things that allow for a level of originality. And that's what's so cool about action sports is that, you know, that that is factored in. So, so on that, right, if you talk about the Olympics, when it first popped up, you know, Tejo was the man, uh, didn't choose not to go. Have you felt the relationship between snowboarding and the Olympics? Has it been right or wrong? And then also the same point, the same way you talked about, you know, earning your stripe to seat at the table. Do you feel a similar way around when snowboarding was potentially in many people's views to get exploited, to get used by someone else? How did you feel? Obviously you would have been right in the mix of it. What were your emotions at the time then? And then your emotions now. I wrote a op-ed that I think it appeared in something. And then I was quoted in Newsweek before Nagano. Nagano? I always say it wrong. Um, that was very critical of the Olympics. I thought, I mean, what was happening at the time between FIS and the ISF was totally unacceptable. Yeah. yeah totally. And, and, you know, the FIS can suck it. But I think that uh, having represented Tora, Scotty Lego, and Yuri Podlachikov, and now three Olympians who are likely to qualify for skateboarding in Deshaun Jordan, Jagger Eaton, and Haymana Reynolds, I look at it as another layer of opportunity. It is not the be all end all. There's no one who's just going to roll in and win the Olympics and then be respected amongst their peers and in the culture and community without a level of diversity of their uh, athleticism and a true love for the sports. And I don't even like to call them sports, right? I mean, they're so different, but I really do see how one, as a young athlete, growing up why these are Olympic sports, that is a goalpost or a milestone that is worthy of attention. And I also laugh at how poorly organized the governing bodies are and the inherent bureaucratic political bullshit that is totally counter to my own, my own uh, anti-authoritative kind of uh, ethos. But from a business perspective, I only see, you know, blue sky. The, when you talk about, you know, the, the Chinese coming to the snowboard game, the government f starts to get involved and they start, you know, throwing dollars in the mix to get, um, to get medals. And then when you come to skate culture, it's almost the antithesis of that. It's the absolute anti we're, we're street, we're, we're core, we're whatever. And snowboarding was that as well. Like to, to many respects, um, for these from dirt bags coming through, blah, blah. Then you had, you know, like a Danny Cass pop up or I remember like a hikey saucer with a mohawk and no yeah. one, 
probably remembers Heike Sauce's name. Everyone's like, this is a fucking dude with a mohawk. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, yeah. and I think that I love how um, maybe it's either the tension or the, the anti-authoritarianism or whatever that, that is. There's something like kind of like simplistically humorous about these little like uh, <laughs> crew that get in and just, you know what I mean? And just like, I don't know if it's underdog mentality. I'm trying to figure it out because I, I can. You've you've seen it time and time again where, not necessarily that culture gets exploited or commercialized, but you know when you've got such a um, a wholehearted, you know, like love and passion for something that you do that goes directly at odds to many of the things, whether it's be mainstream or big money or big corporate. The next thing you know, flipping, you know, Sean White's on a weedy box or some shit. Um, yeah, it, I, I find it I find it humorous, but at the same time for the blue sky when they've got a certain time frame and then they can, you know, stack that cheddar and get it rolling, they're going to make those, they're going to make those moves. Why not? Why not? I mean, I think, you know, you look back at like Kazu who got fined for not wearing his tie properly <laughs> or, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, Ross for you lost his medal for, yeah. for, for smoking weed. I mean, it is yeah. just, but that's also what keeps it interesting. I think it would be a shame to see high level sport go vanilla, especially when it's something that's driven off soul. But I think to your point before, Cersei, is I don't think any the best ever will ever not not be um well rounded like a you know to, to your point of potentially where the Japanese aren't winning there. That almost becomes a, an insurance policy to keep the core real because those points of variance of the perspective of creativity is always gonna keep that kind of as the the filter for like authentic greatness to have legacy right which is it kind of makes you maybe feel a bit more hopeful because regardless what happens and who does what wherever you're always going to kind of have that kind of that sort of piece it's um, part of our dna for sure yeah yeah um i was actually going to ask you about um the athletes that are together today like now versus 20 years what's the biggest difference from a 2000 pro and a 2020 pro in your in your opinion across action sports either in terms of mindset training regime nutrition whatever their world looks like yeah yeah go there for it go there for a second i mean we've just had such innovations in so many you know i'm i'm teaching a, a online class sports management mastermind www.sportsmanagementmastermind, where we talk about this a lot, which is basically how to help your kids prepare for a, a successful professional career. And the developments that we've had, even in mindset training, um, airbags, um, access to good training facilities is pretty profound. I mean, even just like the adaptation of like real nutrition. I mean, we, we, it all comes down to like your environment and how much of those things that you're willing to implement. But I think, you know, moving forward, much like any sport, you'll have to be actually engaging a lot of those training modalities um, in order to be better than everybody else. And, you know, I certainly think like mental strength and mental training are you know, across the board, not just action sports, but in general, are we're seeing huge uh, proof of their influence. Mm. I remember um, when I was super young, Michael Jordan had this interview and he said, you know, 80% of this game's mental. And I was like, you know, four foot three. So I'm like, piss off, you're six foot six, you can just dunk. 
it's sweet. That's all you got to do. Um, and then I, I remember in, uh, it might have been like Wanaka 08 or something. And then there was a Keir Dillon, uh, uh, what was it, Mark Frank? It was, um, there's a couple of other athletes and they were in the gym. And I remember like, what are these guys going to the gym for? Like, what the fuck? And then you fast forward thing. And then now you've got like full nutritionists and physios and mindset coaches and just all this other crazy stuff that sort of comes along with it. The, the, the leaps and bounds definitely come a long way from, you know, like a Danny Cass rage until six in the morning, turn up with an hour's worth of sleep and winning the US Open, right? Like it, it, come, it feels like it's come a long, a long way in that respect. Um, when you think of high performance competition and stuff now, obviously um, X Games looks like it potentially might be for sale or not sale or there's some stuff there. What's your take on um, the future of X Games in terms of where it's positioned, what you feel it could be? Is it stale? Is it what, how you could reinvent and regulate? who could buy it, what would do you do with it if you owned it? What's your take on X Games in 2021? Well, I have a lot of love for X Games. I mean, certainly X Games is one of the biggest properties and platforms for action sports in the space in non-Olympic years. Um, I think the problem is, is that action sports is pretty small, right? The, the genres themselves... <clears throat> aren't as big as a lot of the traditional sports. So for a big network like ESPN to see the value and be able to sell advertising across platform, it, you know, for whatever reason has become more difficult. We've seen some contraction, although participation's up. Um, you know, I think that it will find a home. I think action sports, uh, is important what that looks like i don't know i think that espn ha hasn't updated in a way that is necessary to to maintain the enthusiasm of the audience and i mean if you look at what we're doing with natural selection it's like you have to evolve or you die right and and i'm not saying that i think x games really you know, they had like a huge peak. Remember when they were doing all their Global X games? And, um, you know, I really hope that they can continue to do that and find ways. But when you're relying on uh, host cities to foot the bill, you know, it, it, the, it, it, it's tough, right? It's just, it's not the same. And especially in a COVID year, you know, experiential, I mean, a lot of what X Games was doing was making a really great on-site experience for fans. And that is great. And, and I'm sure that we'll find a way to continue to do that in the new post-COVID world. But um, I don't know. I think it's tough. I think a lot of the problem is, is that we haven't done a good job of building new stars, when Chloe Kim and Sean White decide to check out and nobody cares because we haven't invested in good storytelling or there's no one who is like really a standout or interesting, then that's on us, right? We as a community mm -hmm. and as a culture need to do a better job of telling those stories to make for compelling content and uh, audience engagement. Yeah. It's pretty clear that um, the brand of, like say X Games and kind of where, where it's got to, uh, you know, I was looking at some of the the numbers behind some of these, these pay-per-views when it's these sort of celebrity boxing things. Right. And I'm like, yeah. these guys aren't even boxers and there's more people sign on to here. Like, is it, is it, but can we go like, back to kind of like, 
yeah, are they going to do people just want to see more evil Knievely type shit? Like, all right, we're going to do a 200 foot jump, like kind of the, is it the Robbie Madison or New Year's type thing or something? Like what is the average consumer? And I remember in uh, New Zealand for the, the Burden Open and stuff and I'd emcee the event and we do the TV show and that, you know, I got some feedback from people like, no one knows what any of the tricks mean anyway. They either just want to see a slam or a black backflip. And I'm like, what? Like, dude, can't you tell us a switchback five and blah, 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 blah. And they're like, right. they, don't, they don't get it, right? And so then- but then without then storytelling is different because I remember you, you, you think about how the narrative of Sean White was always crafted in the mainstream for X games. And then, you know, Johnny Bob Hoedown from flipping Arkansas was tuning in on a Sunday night at seven. Cause he wants to see if the redhead guy is going to win his 10th gold or whatever it may be storytelling. And it's, it seems, I don't, it's weird because the, the quality of competition has gone up a hundred fold from what they did 20 years ago in X games. But there seems to be like a gap or something missing there with, and I think you might be right there, Cersei. Is it, is it storytelling of the athletes, you know, the same way they went from brand, you know, Jordan to Kobe to now LeBron action sports is missing those kind of characters and those creatures. Maybe I'm, I'm not sure. Do you think it's a, a storytelling problem with the actual sport itself to keep it sustainable for the future? Right. Or is it a formatting problem? I think it's two things. I think it's first and foremost, small genres. So trying to appeal to a mass audience is a disservice. Why are we doing that? Um, and ultimately, we need to get over the idea that 50 million people have to be into it for it to be viable, right? Like we have a core audience, let's serve the audience, right? And I think that, um, you know, if X Games goes somewhere else, a platform that is willing to really dig in to that audience, then I think ultimately uh, everyone's happier. So it might not be as big a dollars, but there's still an audience there that wants to see this stuff. And I think we, I think, and I, and then I think in addition to that, it is about comprehensive storytelling, building characters. Um, and a level of consistency and communication that allows for people a place to go to get that information. And I think that, um, sorry, come here, okay. Sorry, my dog was wanting to say hello. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, and I think that's what we're doing with natural selection. Right. We're really building characters. We're storytelling. We're doing it. We're bringing nature to your living room. I mean, we're we're really up leveling um, and, and, and helping people understand, you know, who these interesting and dynamic athletes are and why what they're doing is totally awesome. And, and I think that that's been a great exercise for us. And I guess, you know, legitimizing the property through tangible data and results, which we got. And um, please tune in Friday, Red Bull TV, April 16th, uh, 12 noon Pacific Standard, 3 Eastern. I think there's a really good point there around just the, the, the escapism that the mainstream has. Like I remember when Burden decided to go um, like this year round lifestyle brand. Everyone's like, dude, you sell snowboards. Like, what and then you get a bit older like actually it's like 
it's the escapism of you know johnny bob that's flipping an hr down in the middle of some salesforce tower that wants to get out and into it and you know and that whole sort of piece there too which is which is interesting um when you think of um this neck oh sorry sorry there sorry there i'm here can you hear me oh, oh sorry yeah just sorry, just gonna cut, cut out for a second uh what is going on here hold up so what do you see of the for the next phase in action sports in the next 10, 20 years? The next phase. Um, the next phase is, I think, incremental growth for each category. I certainly think Olympic inclusion of surfing and snowboarding and skateboarding, sorry, uh, allow for a really fun new layer of mainstream visibility through a legitimate platform. And I think that we will continue to see uh, incremental growth and participation. I think we've seen contraction um, on uh, growth of endemic brands, but I really believe that direct to consumer is going to solve some problems. And we're seeing just these massive disruptive uh, shifts and whether that's like in crypto or NFTs or, um, you know, things like natural selection where we're, we're kind of turning things on their head. I think we'll continue to see interesting, you know, action sports, we've written the playbook for so much. I mean, if you look back, like we had to make our own content, right? No one was going to make it for us. They weren't going to put it on NBC. And so we made really cool stuff. We grew our own audiences organically through participation and, and community engagement and, and, and being part of communities in these tribes. And I think that we will continue to see um, some of that. And I think a little step back is okay, you know? I mean, certainly my bottom line's been hit, but I'm not going anywhere. I'm, I'm not going to go all of a sudden start representing, you know, NBA players. So this is, this is our world and we're in it because we love it. And I really think in order to be good at something or to make a living, you should love it. And I think that um, most, if not all people who are actively engaged in this business and our audience love it. And when you have a rabid fan base, even if it's small, as long as you're serving that um, that market authentically and with good products and participation, you have a viable business. And I'm tired of like this, we you know Amazon like juggernaut perspective on things. Like I'm totally getting back to kind of a micro hyper local. Um, you know, cottage industries, as opposed to like, we don't need to be a billion dollar brands. Let's create, you know, viable businesses that work for these respective audiences by serving them in meaningful ways. Mm. It's almost coming back to like the, the thousand true fans thing, you know, go right. niche, go, go deep, get glue, have sustainability and longevity. That's where, mm -hmm. that's where you feel these, these pockets for we'll, we'll get to. I do. I do. And I think that all of this private equity and VC conglomeratization that we've had, I mean, you even look at like what's happened at Nike B recently with their reorgs, like 
you know, let's get back to buying and engaging with authentic brands that are run by people who love the space and come from it. And, and also let's not be so greedy that we're all looking for like a 10 times exit. Let's, let's, you know, be happy with where we're at in being able to participate in things that we love in a meaningful way and have lives with purpose. Legacy properties, Ceci, you brought up before. You know, it's, I think, um, you know, when the big cash comes in, you know, they, they, they get a bit of a pop, but then as soon as then, you know, shareholders aren't happy, then they're out of the game. And it's like, well, where'd that, where'd that story go? What was that? Just a, a pop-up front of the pan. And it kind of potentially becomes a little bit disingenuous to those who live and breathe it for years and years and years. Every um, time. Every time. If you look historically, every time. So the future is bright. So basically the lessons are, Susie, keep it real, be all around, uh, deep in niches, thousand true fans, um, and enjoy the ride. I think that's probably a good way to wrap it up. Um, If people would like to, uh, actually, let's do a little plug here for your your mastermind uh, course. What was that website again? Sorry, Susie, I didn't quite hear that one. What was that website? It's sportsmanagementmastermind.com. And we're just just, uh, finishing our four-week intensive, but we will be offering another one. And um, check in for updates and sign up for our email newsletter. It's been a really fun experience. I've been doing it with my uh, partner, Sue Izzo, who uh, is a former agent. She uh, has a ton of experience. We used to be competitors and now we're collaborators. And the the world comes full circle. Um, Susie, I really appreciate um, all your help. And obviously um, the the legacy piece for yourself in terms of being able to, you know, not only influence the influencers, but have stamped on the ecosystem, the brands, and then, you know, pulling the strings behind the scenes that actually um, affect a lot of, lot of other people's um, lives that bring more inspiration and action to their um, worlds as well, which is super cool. So well done you for all you've done for the sports and uh, enjoy the rest of it. And I really appreciate um, your time. I know you're an extremely busy person. So thank you so much for your time today. It was truly my pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks, Ceci. Ladies and gentlemen, Ceci Wallace, absolute weapon, bloody great chat. Uh, Executive Vice President, Action Sports of the Olympics, Westerman Group, and a whole bunch of other great, cool stuff. Enjoy the rest of the day, team. Hope it all's all going well. Uh, This is Rebet Hollis, Rebet Live, Dash Radio, Dash Talk X.